theory. I, yep. I'm technically ca- I'm technically capable. Of being technical. <laughs> um, Biz, thank you, thank you so much for being here. This is really exciting to meet you. I actually didn't know. Um, well, I wouldn't know from Twitter that you had an accent. Like, uh, do you mind telling me where where it comes from or where you hail from? <laughs> I don't tweet with an accent, I guess. And well, there's uh, not a special <laughs> font for that, you know. <laughs> and uh, and my accent, I like to say that uh, I live in the United States, but uh, uh, a lot of people ask me where my accent is from, and I do like to say that uh, I don't know. It won't tell me. It likes to keep an air of mystery about itself. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I am originally from Australia, but uh, I've been living in the United States now for nearly 10 years uh and prior to that i lived uh in europe uh a little bit in south america so uh, uh my my heritage is very firmly australian but uh, uh i do think of myself as very much a, a and i know it's sort of tried to say it these days but a bit of a bit of a global citizen well, um, yeah you seem like a man of the world for sure uh, i would say i think um, even before even before i knew you were literally uh of a i guess international descent like who cares i'm just <laughs> your accent that's really fascinating and I know actually a few people recently in my life, uh, professionally, I guess, who have like an ambiguous accent, I guess you would say, like where they're like uh, kind of like a cross between like South African and like Australian and British, maybe like and a little American, kind of like this like weird, well-traveled kind of person personage that like kind of pick up a little bit of it wherever they go, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, well, my, my Australian accent has definitely gotten stronger since I moved to the United States because, uh, I mean, Americans love it. I'm not going to lie. Uh, my, my wife certainly did, but, uh, or does, but, um, uh, I, I did before then when living, uh, in countries where English is a second, third, or maybe even distant fifth or sixth language, you do tend to, uh, with an accent like mine, you do tend to adopt a certain BBC international accent that's very easy for people to understand. Uh, because it's, it's, you know, my accent is, it can be pretty hard to understand, especially like when I get angry and upset and start swearing. But, uh, uh, so I'd say they're probably, uh, those sorts of people, uh, uh, have experience working in countries where they need to be understood, you know, and that's, uh, that's a big part of it. Yeah, the BBC World Service kind of vibe here. I love it. I actually like, um, yeah, I'm a big fan actually of radio in general. And I kind of miss like the, like the, I don't know if it's really the golden age of radio. I guess I kind of probably, we both missed that. It was like the 1920s maybe, but like, um, like just the radio in general, like it was such a wonderful medium, a great way to, I don't know, receive information. It's propagandistic, sure, but it was well done. I don't know. I kind of long for well done propaganda. I feel like these days the world service had it. I feel like, um, there is other, just radio in general was just a great form. Uh, did you, do you, were you a fan of radio at all? <laughs> oh, I, I loved, I mean, I grew up listening. I grew up in a very small country town. So the, uh, the only way to actually hear music, uh, like there wasn't like a, you know, uh, there were barn, barn dances and like the, the, uh, the square dances in the, in the halls. Uh, and there were nightclubs for, for like people over 18. But for, for us kids, there really wasn't much exposure to, to music other than listening to the radio. Uh, and uh, one of my favorite shows uh, growing up was the uh, Casey Kasem top American top 40. Um, so like for a very long time, you know, I associated that with a, with America and American radio. And, uh, and in some ways I was thinking about this, it's kind of what I'm really enjoying lately with, uh, with the podcast uh, scene, uh, mm-hmm. like yourselves, like uh, thoughts and prayers and, and, the, and the rare candy guys, uh, ball earth propaganda is it's like this return, almost to that sort of 
not uh, not quite talk back, but to that kind of radio era of like, uh, you know, jumping on the radio and talking to people and, you know, listening to other people's experiences, new music, that sort of thing. So like, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, it, it gives me a little wave of nostalgia, especially, uh, you know, growing up and hearing about, uh, in between the song breaks, uh, all the latest weird things that are happening in <laughs> faraway America, uh, from this little, uh, country town in, uh, backwater country town in, uh, central Queensland, Australia. It was, uh, a big part of growing up and uh you know it's it's really one of those things i i like uh uh that you know we everybody talks about it especially on outside of twitter but about how the slide into uh mediocrity and decay of like the general entertainment yeah. <laughs> industry but uh that you know uh listening to you know i i i i almost you know throw up a little in my mouth if npr actually comes <laughs> on accidentally on the radio and yeah. it's uh and i'm like oh my god this is just like full bore propaganda now it's like totally. it's, it's Totally- it's just not even hidden, you know. And in no, the old I- days, the propaganda was embedded. At least it was. They 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 put some art into it. <laughs> they, did, they did. They it was different. I didn't mention NPR. I did. I just another one though, where the production is so well done and really was very enjoyable for a long time. Like this American Life, fantastic show, like really well done audio art form, and then just what it's become horrific um and there was a station here called kgo that was like call in radio that was big for a, a long time it was talk radio but it was not really left or right really which was kind of uh distinct for that market that you mm-hmm. Really frankly, like conservative radio, uh, on like the AM, you know, stations. And this was like local. It was call in. They had a few syndicated shows, but it was almost all local programming. It was very successful. And like, it was just great. I would always have it on just in the background, just like parasocially, really like just having people like calling in, listening. Yeah. It was fascinating. And then of course, things like Art Bell or like coast to coast, um, yep. late night things is a great medium for kind of the weird talk that I hope we get into uh, this evening. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I loved Art Bell. We that was almost kind of like a Samizdat thing in uh, in Australia, where people would hand out uh, uh, tape cassettes of Art Bell shows that they'd like uh, recorded because they had like a radio that could pick it up uh, from the US, or uh, and I think it was eventually syndicated from some other radio stations eventually. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that that was my, a lot of my first exposure to a lot of that world was uh, through like uh, weird audio cassettes of these uh, talk show radio uh, from the US bootleg art bell i love yeah. that. that's amazing um and you mentioned like the whole squad basically like rare candy baller of propaganda thoughts and prayers like uh and like that's the whole gang i have biz here this evening uh i'm really excited to have you biz i feel like i should not go too far without introducing you we'll um we'll put your ad out there later i think we, we can talk about it a little bit more i'll make sure we credit you and where people can find you because i think it may be changing it sounds like uh, do you want to talk about that like a little bit um i think you're kind of you're shifting back to anonymity it sounds like a little bit bit uh what's going on there well i mean it's not like i was ever really like a strict public person but uh i worked for a long time for uh well for for you know i'm not gonna and this is part of the anonymity problem Uh, i worked for greenpeace uh internationally for several years I, uh, I worked for Doctors Without Borders for, for quite a long time, um, was even on the, uh, the board of directors of the Australian, uh, office for quite a while. So, uh, I had a, an involvement on a certain level with these organizations that had a, a you'd say it was like a, a minor social, uh, public profile, right? So like, uh, you know, uh, you, I, you probably can't find so much, but searching in the, in the, in the aughts, uh, for like YouTube videos of Greenpeace, you'll find me like in occasional videos, being quoted and like, you know, um, 
uh, you know, so, so like, and I, when I started tweeting, it was as a campaigner, as a, uh, for Greenpeace. So like, you know, you use your real name, you're public. And, uh, uh, and that was like 2009. That almost seems like a, <laughs> another era. Yeah, yes. Uh, so I sort of drifted into, uh, the opposite of anonymity. Like, uh, you know, uh, I had this public persona that was like, uh, associated with already quite radical, uh, activism, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, especially in, uh, you know, the, around the, the, the post nine 11 days, uh, where activism was still, you know, the comeback was quite edgy. It was like, those were tough times. And, uh, and since then I, I retired from, from that life. I, uh, I, uh, decided to take a step back really after, uh, after the whole Trump election where I was. <laughs> <laughs> I I kind of felt like uh, 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 everything was going crazy, you know, in in my in the, in my workspaces, and uh, I was kind of quite tired of it. So I moved on to to do something else, and and unfortunately, that something else was in the sciences, and then uh, uh, COVID happened. So uh, um, uh, I I tried uh, with my sort of semi-public persona because I knew a lot of people who were like the president of Doctors Without Borders Australia follows me and is like a friend on Twitter, a friend on, on Facebook and other social media. You know, uh, I, I know people who are, you know, directors at, at a senior level at international organizations like Greenpeace. Uh, where, you know, I was harassing them to do something, you know, that to, to like, you know, uh, as, as activists, how can we stand by when see our rights being to, our right to talk, to, to speech being quashed, like our, our freedoms being impinged because just because they're coming for the, the anti-vaxxers and the anti-maskers doesn't mean they won't, won't come for us and that, that people were deluded if they thought that this like 2020 period was anything other than an election psyop that we were going to see this like uh that you know suddenly like street that that sort of street violence that we saw in 2020 was going to somehow lead to like a revolution and that we could like abandon all plans to actually bring about you know a consensual like uh change in society and i know it, it freaked me out and uh so for for a while there i tried in that area <laughs> to convince some other people that who i knew very well and who like you know uh it was I couldn't imagine like how, what had changed in 2020 that these people suddenly abandoned so many principles that they had like, you know, some cases very drunkenly stated to me <laughs> when it's the most authentic, right? <laughs> because I had no idea I, you were like a dignitary of this, like kind of, uh, you're, you're in this like highly uh, credentialed kind of milieu or kind of like very relevant to the moment really. Cause they're so like scientific, I guess so it's kind of scientific or wait, what's the word like scientific ism, scientism, I think it's scientism. Like, <laughs> yeah, kind of like this, like it's almost like the Silicon Valley for science in a way, where there's this kind of like this uh, culture of people around it. They maybe aren't even necessarily <laughs> the ones that like do the actual producing or the real change, but they're kind of like um, celebrate. They're kind of the figureheads for it in a sense, I guess. Maybe that's how I think of Doctors Without Borders, maybe or or Greenpeace uh, temporarily. Anyway, they may have had different roles in the past. Um, did you? Were you kind of? So it sounds like you were kind of surprised. I have a lot of questions actually. And it sounds similar actually. Your experiences to some of mine of trying to. Um, work from the middle to convince people to do the right thing when they should know how to do it anyway. And being kind of caught in that bind between, um, I don't know, like the, the official narrative and like what you know, and kind of maybe in your heart is right. And trying to gather people to join that side. It, it's, it's hard. Uh, but I kind of want to ask you, I guess, um, I well, usually first ask guests about where they were on 9-11. And I think that this is really relevant to this line of questioning. So um, you mentioned Greenpeace, and I think I know a little bit about your story. Do you mind telling myself and the listeners a little bit about um, what I learned from your really excellent Substack piece, which was 
highly, highly well written, highly well written is not a good statement. That's something a bad, bad writer would say. It was a really well written piece. I, I will link to in our, our post. I encourage the listeners to, to check that out for sure. Um, tell me about Greenpeace and, uh, cause I think this was another time you were maybe surprised by their reaction or the reaction of this kind of group to, um, to political events. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, so well, you know, it's a it's a classic. Uh, do you remember where you were in nine eleven? Sort of story, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and 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 I, I have written that Substack piece, and that Substack piece was intended to be, uh, and is still intended to be, the start of a series of other uh, sort of stories, uh, experiences in the past um, that I think uh, are still germane to you know, still relevant to today, uh, and there is a little bit story. Uh, 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 very connected story as to why that hasn't happened. Like I, I, I hoped it would, but, um, uh, in particular with, uh, with 9-11 at the time I was working for Greenpeace and had been for uh, a couple of years at this point. And I'd, I'd started out as a volunteer, uh, in the fairly sort of traditional way that most people imagine Greenpeace, people get involved with Greenpeace, like handing out leaflets on the street, uh, you know, uh, uh, at, at, with the, the shake, shaking the can at a, a lot of hacky sack parties. Was there hacky yeah, sack? Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, there was, there was a lot of hacky sack, uh, and, uh, long, long sessions. Uh, that was part of the group. <laughs> Training, uh, to get us, uh, into peak fitness. Um, and so I'd been working for a while already at that point, uh, for Greenpeace, um, in, a, in sort of a variety of roles. And, um, and I'd really sort of, I'd already become a little disillusioned with the, the, their office, uh, sort of, uh, Milieu, milieu of Greenpeace that it was, you know, there was a lot of into into office politics. There was a lot of ambitious people. There was a lot of careerism. There were a lot of bad mistakes made by stupid people. And, uh, and I'd also had a, a pretty nasty breakup, uh, that had sort of broken my heart pretty badly. <laughs> and, uh, as, as, as following the time honored tradition of many men before me, I ran away to sea, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's fortune's lot, you know, that's what you <laughs> and, uh, and that involved, and that involved going to, to sea with Greenpeace, uh, working on, on board one of their, their ships. Uh, and at the time they had three, uh, ocean going ships that were conducting, you know, all sorts of stuff from like the, the stuff that most people think of, like the research, uh, but also like the, the, you know, the, the intervening to stop the whale, the Japanese whaling fleets, mm-hmm. um, and also like stopping and blockading coal ships, uh, being loaded, which was, uh, a, yeah, a bit of a- material activism. Really, like, yeah, yeah. Very direct, direct action was the the name of the game. Your kid shit in the streets, like we do nowadays, but actual yeah, yeah, yeah. direct action. <laughs> yes, I mean that's very topical. As um, been part of also my journey is is what we've seen recently has been a in some ways a perversion of uh of activism and not not actually not even how it was done 10 years ago you know it's like uh again it's like it's like the covid thing like you know 2020 came and we threw out the window all of these ideas we had about not just like you know how you can contain a pandemic but also how you bring about lasting social change you know and like uh you know not burning down you know the uh the the shops of people who actually supported your cause was 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 kind of like you know sort of in a pretty anodyne position back then but now it seems to be in question. <laughs> but in, in, in those long away days of 20 years ago when I was a young strapping lad of like, uh, I mean, what was it, 20, 21 years old? Uh, 20, sorry, not that young, 20, 20, uh, I think I was 20, uh, in 2001, I was 27. Um, 
I, uh, I joined the ship, uh, in Cabo Verde off the coast of West Africa. Uh, bearing in mind, this is like my second time traveling overseas, uh, and being <laughs> dumped in a, uh, in a very strange, uh, country like Cabo Verde, uh, trying to find where, where my, where is Cabo Verde actually? I'm not even sure I'm familiar with it. It's a, it's a former Portuguese colony off the coast of West Africa, uh, yeah. north of, um, north of Senegal and south of the Canary Islands. And it's, uh, Portuguese colonies. I heard they did colonialism yeah. right over there. I don't <laughs> uh, Angola might disagree, but like, uh, <laughs> Maybe uh but, but, but the, but the, in, in Cabo Verde, they seem pretty chill with it. I mean, you know, it's sometimes a, it works out for people. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. yeah they good, got some, they, you know, you get colonized sometimes. It happens. Sometimes yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt this. Please. Well, and actually Cabo Verde was weird in that, like, they were actually, there were no people there in most of the islands when they arrived. They actually brought people there. Oh, but, yeah. So arrived there, joined the ship and, uh, uh, and our, and we were doing a, uh, pirate fishing expedition where we were out investigating what's an enormous trade in illegal fishing, fishing that's still ongoing in Western Africa today, which is, uh, uh, they traditionally flagged out of a state of convenience like Panama, but they're owned by Chinese fishing companies. They're crewed by, basically kids that have been sold into virtual slavery for three to four years on board these ships. Uh, and they don't set uh, foot on sea half the time for, for those years, for years, they can be on these ships that are resupplied, wow. transfer their cargo all 300 miles offshore. And are the and, ships transporting? What do they transport? Is it like, what kind of cargo is it? Is it illegal? Uh, it's it's <laughs> mostly tuna. They're, they're fishing for illegally. Fishing for tuna and, uh, a uh, bunch of other, those sort of pelagic fish that feed in the, cause that, that shelf is very shallow. So there's a lot of reef structure where the, there's a lot of fish, um, fishing there, fish, fish, fish getting about with their fish thing. And, uh, and so we're, we're just out, we're, we're out there, you know, chasing down these, uh, illegal fishing ships. And we're like, they're, you know, they're, they're, they don't, they're not connected to the politics of what's going on. They're just a, a bunch of Chinese kids trying to get their fishing done so they can go home. And so they would invite us on board the ships. We'd like bring them Coca Cola and hot food and quite a, quite a, you know, in, you know, they were letting us document all the illegal stuff they were doing because. They weren't going to get arrested. You know, there was, you know, they understood that like, you know, that we weren't going to stop them. We were just there to like document it. And there was no MySpace or social media at the time, really, either, I guess. You know, no, no, no. There was, there was nothing. Like, yeah, a few pictures. You know, they, we didn't know about the permanence of some of this media at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and missions like for a lot of this sort of stuff, our actual audience was, um, uh, policymakers in Brussels or, uh, you know, or, or in, in some cases would be the, the end mark or the, the, the intermediary markets for buying these fish. So we would actually not necessarily be a public campaign in the sense, but, um, uh, one of the, you know, aside from like hoovering up all the fish, uh, one of the big problems with these ships was, is that they would come in close to shore where there was a, an artisanal market of, of the local fishermen who'd been doing this for hundreds of years, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and this, there would be collisions with these, with the smaller vessels. Uh, the ships would dump garbage overboard. And sometimes when those ships were anchored at sea, they would, uh, the, the nets from the, uh, from the local fishing boats would get caught around their, their anchor chain and be destroyed and it would cause problems. And so, uh, you know, we were out there, uh, you know, looking to document this, uh, trying to work with the local fishermen and, 
And then ironically, one day I woke up and uh, we had become ensnared in one of the local fishing nets and become wrapped around our chain, <laughs> just like has happens to the, the pirate fishing ships. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were trying to get this thing, you know, the crew was trying to get this thing free. And uh, I was on a rotating shift with another uh, radio operator. We were technical officers looking after the radio communication and listening into the, uh, to the chatter between the fishing boats and handing the, uh, the, the, the satellite traffic, which we, we had satellite data. We had, you know, internet connection, but it was pretty primitive. Wow. And, uh, and so I, I'd finished my shift, uh, at like, cause I, I was the new guy. I got like the, the 12 at night to four o'clock in the morning shift, you know, <laughs> but, but the, the, uh, so I was asleep when all of this went down. And, uh, so I woke up with all of this going on and like, there's a, you know, a whole cacophony on the deck in the water. We've got boats out. People are trying to like release the net without cutting it. And I was like, woo, damn, that's ironic. <laughs> Alanis Morris said, I don't think it released. Oh, she had actually. Yes. At this point, uh, the perfect soundtrack. I was like, Oh, we can, we can add to it. It's like getting your Greenpeace ship stuck in a, in a local fishing net, isn't it? To the, to the song. And so I went down, I'm like, oh, I, I have too many cooks here. You know, I'm going to go down to the galley where there's only one, you know, and, uh, and mm-hmm. down there, they're like, uh, talking to the, to the, the skipper of the fishing of the local fishing boat. We've got a translator who speaks the local, like, um, uh, it's like a patois of, uh, of Spanish and French and English. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they've got him chilled out. We've got it. We've, we've got our uh, guy on in Sierra Leone in Freetown on the phone. This, this weird, crazy Swiss mercenary guy who's, uh, an excellent cook <laughs> as well. Uh, a real James Bond guy. I was like, um, <laughs> incredible cook. <laughs> And, uh, and he's, he's got the boss and he's in the, in the office talking to them on the phone and, you know, he's giving them money and we're sorting it all out. The net's paid for. Everything's cool. And so like we've, we've got this guy all, yeah, he's like on our side. He's like, okay, we go upstairs, uh, go up, to, up and deck and like load him back into the boat. And, and we're like, we're like, oh yeah, thanks for, you know, sorry about that. Like all good, you know, and he's like, yeah, you, you know, throwing down some more cans of Coca Cola to the crew and like, uh, gave them nice little hot sandwiches and little bags, lunch bags, you know. Um, and then suddenly at that moment, there's like six or seven other canoes of the same sort just arrive out of nowhere with this, uh, with the, you know, the local fishermen, but these guys are wired. They're like really wired because they've all been up fishing all night. Right. And, uh, uh, and they have this, like, uh, it's a stimulant that they like rub into cuts on their cheeks from oh, a, a no. leaf. It's kind of like a, a thing they do to keep awake, uh, to, to keep yeah, fishing okay. through the night, but it also gets them super buzzed. And they like, uh, circling us in these canoes and they like talking away really quickly with the, uh, with the crew on the other boat. And then some of these other new arrivals decide that like, no, actually, like it's not sorted out that in fact, like that we should pay the money to the people there and that they should pay, we should pay them some money as well because like, you know, we're, we're this giant and, and I kept, I kept hearing this one word, American, America, America. America. <laughs> you had money on that. <laughs> yeah. US dollar, US dollar. And I, and like, we're not, we're, we're registered out of Amsterdam. It's a Dutch flag ship, you know, but like, uh, you know, it's also a very beautiful ship, like immaculate condition. Mm-hmm. And we have very expensive military grade 
speedboats, like the uh, the rubber ducky uh, military grade boats on board that you don't see on like normal boats, you know. And they're like, and ecology has those. I feel like, yeah, big satellite dishes everywhere, and you know, and a very white. This was this uh, sophisticated. Honestly, I thought it was just the U.S. military and Scientology. Honestly, well, Greenpeace has got capabilities. Mm, It doesn't anymore. They sold the Esperanza uh, just recently, but until then, it had uh, greater operational capability in the Southern Ocean uh, than than. It was in like the, I think we were like the 13th, if you, if you considered Greenpeace a Navy, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like the ability to operate in, I mean, in around Antarctica. Uh, <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've sent ships to Antarctica. I mean, that might be another topic you want to discuss. I do have it on the list here, uh, Biz. Anyway, go, I'm sorry, you're confident. But, but so everybody's getting upset and angry and then like machetes come out, you know, and it's like, huh. and they're waving <laughs> machetes around and it's like, uh, it's crazy town. And the, uh, the captain, and this is his first ever Greenpeace voyage as a captain. Before that, he like was a tug uh, boat captain in Holland for like 35 years. And, uh, and he <laughs> thought he was getting this like milk run, right? Like that it was just going to be like, just take the hippies down to like, you know, the West Africa. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound like a military ship on the uh, ostensibly, you know. And, no, and- no. It's like- uh, and so he, he's like, he's, he's trying to keep his cool, but he's just like, okay, you know, uh, like start shouting orders, you know, like, uh, cast off all the lines, uh, secure the ship for boarding. Uh, that's <laughs> prepare for boarding almost sounds like something you'd hear in a movie, but like, uh, you yeah, know, like we, we had practiced our boarding drill, you know, and so everybody's running around, like, uh, uh, getting everything ready. And the one of the first mates, uh, one of the mates, this, uh, quite douchey Canadian, uh, ex, um, uh, cruise ship captain uh pulls out his knife and cuts the lines that are attached to the to the one of the boats and when everybody sees the 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 knife on the other canoes they just go crazy and start trying to climb up the side of the ship and so uh and the captain's like full speed ahead and the uh the mv greenpeace is uh, I'm trying to think what it is in american it's 55 fi- uh, meters so it's like uh, about 160 something feet they um, look huge. Yeah, like. it's, it's, a, like it's got there's five decks on the ship. You know, it's it's almost like the ship out of uh, the Life Aquatic. Uh, sure, yes. Okay, <laughs> and and very much like yes, there's times where we felt like uh, watching that movie where I was like, did he ever sail on a Greenpeace ship? But uh, so th- it doesn't move very fast, but it it's powerful and big, and so the ship takes off very slowly at about and the top speed's like thirteen knots, like thirteen miles an hour. Oh my god. And the, and the canoes have an outboard motor, but it's not designed for speed. It's designed to be able to troll around very slowly and efficiently for hours and hours. And so their top speed's about 13 or 14 knots. So <laughs> this is like, it's like a, a jogging speed, not even jogging speed boat race. Like it's like a, a, a you know, like a, almost like you see when you see the Olympics walking like uh event, you know, this exactly. is like, yeah, no, this is not Anderson. This is arrested development. This is like just <laughs> highly comical. I love it, it is. It is. And cause it's deadly serious, right? Yeah, like the, the, same thing, really. the people on the, and the canoes are losing their minds, you know, and we're I'm, like, uh, we'd already seen some, um, some people with, with guns, some armed, like, uh, paramilitaries had come up and tried to signal us at one point. There were guns out there, but we were kind of lucky uh, or grateful that they didn't have any because, like, uh, we were pretty well in range for a good hour. 
where they're like disappearing behind us. You can just see them like going off into the, uh, into the distance. And it's, <laughs> and we're all like, we're, we're sitting there on the helicopter deck, like looking down at the, these, you know, boats disappearing and we're going, wow, that sucked. You know, like that was, that was a great start to the day. I guess like, um, hmm, um that's going to go down well. And then. You know, I'm, I'm like, okay, go back. It's my turn to go back. My, my shift has started again. So I'm like back to the radio room, did the handover with Mike and I'm just sitting down to read through the emails and to sort out the last, the latest email dramas between the, the douchey Canadian mate, uh, who is, uh, uh, sleeping with one of the Chinese translators. But, uh, while she's, while she's, it's, she's thinking that he's going to marry her and like take her, her off to Canada. So like I'm seeing her emails that she's sending out to her friends about him because it's all coming in in one big email, one giant lump of text that we have to sort out for all of the crew members. And, uh, and like there was like a, you know, a tacit sort of understanding we wouldn't tell anybody else uh, unless it was really good gossip. And this is 20. <laughs> This is 20 years ago, like, uh, and without mentioning any names, but at the same time, this guy, this douchebag is like writing to all his mates and basically bragging about how he's going to, you know, uh, uh, dump her, like, you know, as soon as the ship gets back to shore and, you know, like, and full visibility into all this like drama going on on the yeah, ship. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's wild. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so you've seen it all, all of it just, uh, and as I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, 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 you know, copy and pasting to like, you know, the different inboxes. <laughs> of people and uh and and you know it's when when people come on board there this is explained explicitly to them that this is how the system operates that mm-hmm. you know anything you put in the email the radio operator could possibly read and you know, i'm sitting there i'm going like people just don't listen do they <laughs> they have like process it because i feel like it was the same like in like that around that same time in the college emails like there was like it was this old school system and like there was a kind of understanding that people could see what you were emailing essentially like, yeah. in- or an IT person. And I think that disappeared at some point, but I kind of had this like vague recollection of this like uh form of internet that was a little bit more, yeah, kind of like openly surveillance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you don't want the radio operator to read about what a dickhead you are, you probably shouldn't, you know, say it. But <laughs> so I'm reading through these, doing the email sorting job. And then suddenly there's this like mayday call on the radio which is, I'm like, holy shit. Like, this is like the in radio operator because there's a, a certification, like, you know, everything's certified and like, you know, credentialed, of course, and especially on board Greenpeace ships. But, uh, you know, you have to do this whole, uh, two week course basically to learn how to press a red mayday button. You know, it's <laughs> like, uh, and, and so like, this is the, this is the one serious piece of training you actually get. And it's like, so this is like the moment, you know, remember your training, you know. <laughs> And, uh, it's and I, I'm guessing, right? There's not like a multitude of maydays. This is reserved for like a seriously critical event. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, this is it. Like it's, you know, you, you're, it, and this is this thing is like when you're doing this training course, right? It's almost like you're, yeah, uh, that you have to like, they don't, it's not like an oath, but there's this like the radio operators pledge that they don't make you take, but it's like, uh, you know, that, uh, you're there for people's safety and like that you respond lightning fast and like it's this big deal the mayday call you know and it's the actual international law of the sea that if you hear a mayday call you have to respond and if you are able to go to assist no matter how far away you are then you 
have to assist. It's like it's part of the international maritime law. And so, you know, we're, I'm, I'm taking the Mayday call and I'm going, I'm doing it. I'm doing my job as a radio operator. And douchebag Canadian first mate, uh, steps in and goes, back up rookie. I got this one and (laughs) (laughs) takes the radio thing. It takes the, uh, the head handpiece out and starts like talking to this ship. And it turns out that this ship is one of the pirate fishing ships that we've actually only boarded like two days before. We'd actually like gone and met the crew and, and seen them. And this ship is, uh, is taking on water. It's sinking. Uh, you know, they, they have no life, uh, boats on board. They have no life vests. Sounds like absolute chaos. And the, from their coordinates, we're like, uh, we're about, we're about 30 miles away, which is like, uh, a little over two hours, uh, to get there on the ship. And so the, uh, cause we're still going, we're still going full speed at the moment, right? Because we've, we've still got the canoes chasing us. We can still see them in the distance. Forget about them. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. like, I, I actually went out on deck just to check to see if they were still there. And I'm like, oh, there's still a straggler, one of them out there, you know? And so like the captain, like, you know, immediately it's not his, it's not his first mayday, right? You know, so he's like, uh, you know, immediately change, you know, sets the new course for the ship, like, uh, and like gets the crew ready for, for, you know, uh, for, rescue operations and uh and by the time we arrive it's the the end of my shift uh, i've already gone off and i'm you know this whole thing revolves around shifts because when you're working four on four off and uh and i'm lying in bed and and suddenly i can like smell this horrendous stench of diesel in the air this like really like full stench and back out on deck and we're in the middle of this slick of uh of of fuel Oh and we've arrived at the spot where the, where the ship went down mm-hmm. and, uh, and there's nothing. There's like, the, uh, aside from this oil slick and, and flotsam, like rubbish just floating around. And, uh, we launched our boats and we searched around looking for any survivors for like a good hour. And, uh, and we're, we're, we, we, there's nothing, you know, they've all gone down. There was like nine crew. The, the, the captain and the first mate had taken the only life ring. And had managed to get, uh, off the ship and had been rescued by a mercenary, uh, company that had been sent out to, to deal with the Mayday by the fishing company. Uh, cause these fishing companies were they all like, had officers. Sorry. Were they trying, like, when they, you said deal with it, like, was that to get rid, like, was this company trying to get rid of the pirates basically? Was that what they were, they were actually trying to help with the ship? Oh, that, so the company was the company that owned the ships. Okay, uh, the fishing ships. They had an office in, uh, Freetown in Sierra Leone. Uh, the, they all have offices there. And, uh, uh, and so they were, they picked up the Mayday call and they sent out the mercenaries okay. to okay. rescue okay. any crew. Mm-hmm. But we'd got there, we'd gotten there about the same time as the mercenaries and they'd picked up the only two survivors and, uh, and we we're looking and we we're looking and they, and they just buzzed off. They, they got the, the captain and the first mate mm-hmm. and they just, buzzed off and so we're searching and searching and we can't find anything and you know the captain calls the search off and there's this young indian guy shadeep who's like a uh one of the uh, junior engineers and he was in tears he was absolutely devastated uh and he wanted to go back out you just spent time with these people right like you you knew them like they were yeah yeah we they had faces you know they were like and uh and you know the captain's like no you know if we we don't find anything, then there's like, you know, it's gone, you know, like this, it, it, it's been too long. And so we're, we're sort of hosing, pulled all the boats out of the water and like hosing them down. And, uh, and Mike, the other radio operator 
uh, comes out on the deck and he's like, everybody, everybody, big news. And we're like, what? Like we, we've just like, we're on the grave of nine people, you know, like what could be bigger news than like the death that we're all feeling right now, you know, like, but he, Donald McDonald, the bosun is like Gaelic poetry about the ocean taking souls to a breast, you know, I couldn't understand this guy most of the time, but he was like a buddy Wordsworth poet sitting there reading, reading from memory. This like, canticle of the sea and then mike the radio operator just goes no guys this is really important he's like two planes have hit the world trade center (laughs) and a truck bomb has gone off in front of the pentagon wow and we're all just looking at him and we're like jesus mike like no seriously (laughs) like like everybody's having a moment here can you just like like funny joke right you know (laughs) you know but like uh and he's like no and he's got like a printout from the CNN webpage with like all the pictures, like squares. Cause like we couldn't afford that much internet and it's like America under attack. And like, so suddenly we're all scrambling to like the radio terminal to like try and, you know, raise long on the long range radio. We, we called the rainbow warrior, which is uh, another one of the Greenpeace ships, mm-hmm. which at the time was heading up the river, the narrows, the New York narrows. Because Greenpeace was going to celebrate its 30th anniversary on September 15th wow. <laughs> in New York. And, uh, and there's an entire other story that my friend Mel can say and going to celebrate by dropping a banner from the roof of the World Trade Center. Jesus Christ. Oh my God. <laughs> and so we're talking to the radio operator, my, my friend Tom Wooney in New York, and he's like, it's crazy. It's insane. Like, you know, like we, we, we went immediately to anchor. We're like, we've like the ships shut down. The Navy's everywhere. There's helicopters. It's, uh, and, and we're trying to, we're trying to deal with this idea that like something so incredible like this has happened. Mm-hmm. And we're only able to get these like tiny slivers of information because we're, you know, this is pre like broadband internet. We have like a, um, uh, the Inmarsat. Uh, B terminals, A and B terminals. And so like 760 kilobits a second, you know, it's like this crunchy dial up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Crunchy dial up. And like, it was like, and it was like 10, it was like something outrageous, like $17 a megabyte or something. Yeah. And so we try and the captain's like, spend whatever you have to. And we're like, but it's still like trying to load these BBC webpage, the CNN webpage. And it's all just, you know, Trying to like we, I didn't even see footage of the planes hitting the the, the World Trade Center for like six years because God, by God. the time we got back to port, they'd stopped showing it out of respect for the victims, right? Oh, uh, traumatized everybody by playing it fifty million times. I don't think people talk about that how much it was shown over and over. But yes, you're lucky. I would almost say. Well, that, so that was that's this weird disjointed effect for me, right? Is that everybody has yeah, this. Yeah image of 9-11 as this onslaught of CNN banner, Chiron news uh-huh. as 24 hours, as constant updates with nothing new saying the same thing. And, you know, and then like the over and over and over. And then suddenly something happens like the, the other towers collapse, you know, it's like uh, missed yeah. it all. It all happened in these little staccato bursts, you know, I, I, I said it, it was like, it was like watching a war movie through like a keyhole in a door. You know, you're, you're like trying to make out what's going on, but you just see these flashes and these little bits and you'll hear a bit of dialogue that, but for the, for as far as we know, we had, you know, 
all we knew was that two planes said it. And then there was the, the Pentagon. But, you know, like I said, there was the initial story was that, and I remember this really clearly was that it was a truck bomb, you know, um, but that's a, a whole other can of worms. A lot of miscommunications, I guess we can call them on that day. Yeah. No, you literally downloaded 9 11 on dial up. Like you loaded up. Right. Like that's like a peak for people who don't know. It took like an hour for like a large JPEG to display on your screen. And you were like receiving information. Yeah. Through like a, like a really <laughs> way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Watching that image, that so like downloading that first image of the plane, that very like the iconic yeah. one, mm-hmm. and it's just coming. Eh, oh my god, line eh, and then a bit of smoke we can see. Like, eh, and it says, and we're and there's like twenty three people in this tiny radio room, fixated on the screen of this image, just going eh, eh, slowly. And then when it hits the like, you know, where you see where the planes, like everybody is just like. You know, everybody's brain is just like blown. And so the captain is like, well, obviously today is done. And, you know, and, and this is, this is only like midday at this point for us. (laughs) 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 You still have pirates to deal with. You've you've still got like uh, angry, methed out, like uh, local fishermen chasing you, presumably at this point. You know, you've got other problems, you know. (laughs) Wow. And so, you know, that was, that was, that was that, but like, uh, you know, where, where I, <clears throat> where I chose to start this story was, is that, you know, obviously like there's, you know, I was 27 years old at the time. Um, you know, I'd had a life before then, but 9-11, I think for me, you know, like a lot of other people, I think it's, 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 you know, it's fair to say changed people's lives, but for me, it was a real, I, I think it was, possibly a little, had a little more impact in the sense of that, you know, I went back from, I went back to Amsterdam. Like we, we had this thing with the, the ships where like we, we got the orders to go back to, to the Canary Islands to wait to find out what, you know, was going to happen. And we were talking with the, the crews of the other ships because there were three other Greenpeace ships. And, you know, we were like, well, this is what's going to happen. Is this World War Three? Like, is somebody going to like, is the bomb going to go? You know, and there was all of this weird stuff coming in from people's emails because their families oh are sending them emails and this communication going backwards and forwards. Mm-hmm. And like, and, you know, and we're, we're, we're goddamn Greenpeace, right? The, the organization that was founded by a bunch of Vietnam War, uh, protesters and deserters and to, to protest against nuclear war. So like, you know, we felt like we had to say something in this moment that was a plea for peace, you know, and, uh, and we we're talking about like, should we, should we go to the Mediterranean and blockade the entrance, the, the Gibraltar Strait and to prevent the U.S. military? You know, like this yeah. was a, this was a serious discussion that we were having amongst the various crew members. And it was, it was something we could, the, the, you know, like the U.S. military would get through for sure, but you know, a statement would be made and, um, something, it would be material. It would be real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, and we were all like very keyed up and, uh, uh, and then suddenly like head offices like, Stand down, stand down, head back to base. Nothing's going to happen. The U.S. office, which was, uh, 
a lot of people are surprised to find that the U.S. office is not as influential within Greenpeace as they might imagine. The the German office is actually significantly actually, it's <laughs> more actually, influential. That's interesting. It doesn't surprise me, actually, in a way, uh, just because, like, I love that um, green move. It feels planned out, of, like, centrally planned out of Europe. Out of yeah. Oh, it was. <laughs> that's the irony. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yes. So, so, but, uh, but the U.S. brings in a lot of money. Like, it brings in probably right. about 30 to 40 percent of the money globally for Greenpeace. So right. it's a cash cow. But it's not a very effective campaigning organization. But they'd put out a press release that had basically said that, like, uh, you know, now's the time for America to come together, uh, you know, and not to question and to support, you know, <laughs> unconditionally what, you know, bombing the crap out of Afghanistan, yeah. you know, and, uh, and I was just like, I cannot, like, you know, that for me was just like, it was, it was, I was like, I, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing with this organization anymore. You know, it was, uh, um, so I, uh, I ended up going back to Amsterdam. I hadn't finished my contract. I, they still, I still had to work for another six weeks, uh, in the office to like work out my contract. And so they sent me to like prepare, um, all this radio equipment that was being sent to another ship, the, uh, the Esperanza for being fitted out. And uh, I met a uh, guy, Hans Monker, who was like one of those, legitimate like uh behind the scenes guy that like made Greenpeace uh some of the most amazing things possible. He was truly a, a, an amazing individual, uh an enormous heart, uh unfortunately, which killed him uh only a few years after. But um uh he uh he he'd worked for Doctors Without Borders uh quite a bit in in the Congo and in other places. And uh and he uh he was very knowledgeable and uh and boy he could drink. And, uh, and so we did, you know, what else were you going to do? Like it was in the, this, this war drum that's been beaten, this, you know, Amsterdam, this, you know, famous free city felt like it was like under siege, you know, like, uh, everybody was like with, you know, the, 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 you know, everybody looking at the, the, the large Muslim population there with like, you know, with eyes askance and this tension that was building there. And, uh, um, uh, it was, uh, you know, so, so we just like, drank and like took drugs and like got out of it and tried to ignore what was going on and and get on day by day. And, uh, and it was one morning that I, uh, was, I was staying at another friend's place, um, Martin, who, uh, um, had put me up in his spare room and, uh, uh, I, I got up in the morning and Martin usually left super early because he had a girlfriend in Hong Kong that he wanted to talk to early on the phone in the office, you know. And, uh, so I'd get up and I'd, you know, smoke my first morning joint, uh, uh, wake and bake in front of the, it's Amsterdam, right? Like it's a, it's a, why not? No, I mean, I'm three, like, uh, and, zone. <laughs> and you know, some, some mornings I'd get up and watch TV and then go into the office and some mornings I'd just, go into the office and it was all pretty gray and dismal because it's also like the start of winter there at this point uh in in mid-october and uh and i'm about to leave uh and i i sit down to watch the television for some weird reason i'm like just gonna check what's on tv and it's like some banal like story of like you know um golf courses you know like uh i, I don't even remember specifically but it's so it was so like meaningless you know and then suddenly it's like uh oh, this just in tom uh we've begun bombing kabul and the screen cuts to this like green screen you know the the military you know uh <laughs> ir vision goggles uh which which night vision you know <laughs> yeah because 
they want it's like Baghdad. It's like you know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it was, it was uh, no, it very yeah, traumatizing. Honestly, I, I'm kind of traumatized. As you mentioned, I got this shiver because I thought of like I was a small child, I guess, kind of during the Gulf War. But I remember the images of it, and it was a scary time, and that definitely in that same period as well. Except it was not like Baghdad. It's like uh, you've this, got this, like this, like it's this grainy image. And I was, I was in the military after I uh, uh, dropped out of college when I was much younger, so I had quite a bit of experience. Use and also for Greenpeace, like we had that sort of equipment, so I was quite used to looking through goggles and uh, uh, night vision goggles and being able to tell what the difference between, say, like a set of headlights and like what's a muzzle flash of a gun, for example, because it's a, it's an important distinction you need to be able to make if you're like, uh, you know. <laughs> in a military operation. <laughs> it would be, I can see that. <laughs> and I'm watching this and I'm going, nothing's happening. Like, it's just, there's, I can't, you can't see anything. There's nothing happening. And, uh, and I realized this as I would, because I, I ended up going to Kabul uh, about a year and a bit later, um, uh, where I worked for a year with, with Doctors Our Borders. Uh, and, uh, um, and because there's nothing there, it's already been bombed to the shithouse by the Northern Alliance and the Taliban, you know, uh, and, uh, and it's this, this image that's just like dead and like no commentary for like five minutes. And then the announcer comes on with, gee, Tom, it's not nearly as exciting as Baghdad in 91. <laughs> Jesus. And that was the moment. This is the moment for me where I felt something inside me, like, you know, this like, uh, something snapped something like uncoiled and came free and i was just like i this is it this is the 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 this is going to be the thing that defines my generation and like how we respond to this is how my generation will be seen in history you know and i you know (laughs) self-aggrandizement narcissism is not my thing obviously (laughs) but i I, I, I was like, I have to do something. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not going to go and join the military, gonna fight the Taliban or like, you know, and, and I was already working for one of the largest, most well-funded protest peace, peace protest organizations mm-hmm. in history. And they were doing nothing. And I'm like, what, what, you know, what can I do? And, and I was like, my, you know, my friend Hans and another friend of mine who both worked for Doctors Without Borders had told me that you should totally try it sometime. It might be up your alley. They're always looking for, you know, guys like you with certain certain skills. You know, I have a very certain set of skills. You know, <laughs> it's a very specific, very general set of skills. But, um, you know, I, uh, and so I like I, I rang up the office, their office. And asked them and they said, look, you know, we have a application process, you know, send us an email with your CV and, and we'll get back to you. And, uh, and so I sent them an email and I thought it was like going to be like, you know, whatever. I'm like, Oh, well, that, that sucks. I just got to send them an email, you know, like, mm-hmm. and three hours later, I get a phone call. Um, cause, uh, you know, um, uh, <laughs> we had phones in those days, not much internet. But, uh, uh, and, uh, and they said, can you come in for an interview tomorrow? And, uh, and it turned out I did have the skills they were, they were looking for. And so I, I went and had my interview with Doctors Without Borders, uh, uh, for a position as a, as a logistics specialist, um, or as I like to, to call it humanitarian roadie. Uh, and, uh, and then they tell me at the end of the interview, like, when can I deploy?
are by a certain path, right? You know, it all has to connect, and it will, and it all does connect. And it's funny you said you kind of joked that it was like uh, maybe narcissistic that you felt kind of called or or uh, the weight of like history kind of almost on you, but. I don't think that's, well, maybe it's, maybe I think it's not narcissistic to relate to it, but at the same time, I think that is a real, uh, a real experience that people in this year, in this present moment probably really do relate to because it, it's happened to a lot of us. Like you, you described it as an uncoiling kind of, and I, I totally relate. It's kind of like break almost of like, um, for me, it was almost kind of like, oh, I get why those guys like set themselves on fire during the Vietnam War almost. It's like, cause you feel this like powerlessness and this like kind of restless, uh, calling to do something. Cause you just realize that you can't be a part of, um, you know, what's going on. I think maybe I'm putting a lot of words into your mouth, but that's, that's <laughs> away from your uh, kind of description in a way. And it, it really resonated with me. And I think a lot of people listening as well. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's, it's, and I think it is, and this was kind of reflecting backwards, you know, and it's uh, forwards, uh, you know, time is an illusion, you know, <laughs> but, you know, nearly, nearly 20 years later, and I'm like, those same people, same people, the same people, I'm sitting there, I'm going, this is that moment again, people, this yeah. is that moment again, you know, and there was, and I expected some, some would ignore it. Some would like look the other way. Some would like, you know, and, and, but those who had done that before who had said, no, I'm not going to stand by. I, I, I thought they would, but they, they, they did, they did not. <laughs> you know, it's sad because I feel like they found a way to weaponize their, the, the things about them that were good that drew, drew them to things like Greenpeace and activism and humanitarianism are the things that they used against them to make them complicit in the COVID conspiracy. Like it's gross. It makes me really mad that that's the case, in fact, because it's very well intentioned people. And it really is that whole road to hell paved with a best intention scenario. Like you see it play out in, uh, in the COVID series or, you know, scenario. I don't know. Did you see that with, oh, actually, I have another question actually about that. So with the Greenpeace, you, um, kind of saw them be kind of hypocritical, I guess, I would say about, uh, their response with, um, with, uh, 9-11 and blocking, you, you know, this idea to kind of do activism and block these ships and they kind of squash it. Um, that kind of seems to me like similar to what I saw with like ACLU, maybe sort of, or in a lot of ways in COVID. Did you, were you surprised by some of the institutional failures in COVID? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I was absolutely, uh, stunned and mortified by almost all of them, to be honest. Um, I mean, there were, there were certain ones like, I mean, like I didn't, I didn't like, fa- I mean, I worked in, um, uh, at Doctors Without Borders. One of our remits was trying to deal with the, the HIV issue in developing countries. And, you know, there were, there were projects that had pa- Fauci on a uh, dartboard. You know, he was a, he was public <laughs> enemy number one. Like we reviled him. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was reviled. And then, so I had, I had, I was like, yeah, of course Fauci's going to be a complete nut of snake on this. You know, uh, it came as no surprise to me whatsoever, but the, the, the cascade of that downwards was what shocked me. And, and it shocked me across the board because like, uh, you know, um, uh, there were those institutions like, I mean, ACLU is like, probably the one that most Americans have witnessed go, <laughs> go about face the most. Um, and that's shocking, but, uh, you know, uh, doctors without borders, like there's an untold story there about, um, you know, how they, they, uh, their public, um, I guess facing attitude towards the pandemic and their internal were two completely different things. Um, there was a lot of debate internally about, not, not, not initially like about like, you know, the, the, uh, the, the need for, um, you know, there was, there was disquiet about the lockdowns 
and the and the mandates and there was a lot of internal discussion, but it didn't super really affect a lot of the places where Doctors Without Borders was actually working. Okay. You know, the uh and and in places where it did, they did do some advocacy where they like lockdowns are causing unnecessary harm, etc. Um, but they were all in on the vaccine bandwagon. And, uh, and, and, and that, that didn't come as much of a surprise. In fact, it was, it was actually like, because I was still thinking in that way that I got the jab myself, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I honestly thought it was going to do nothing. I just thought it was going to be like yeah, sugar water, you know, uh, cause like a, a disease that like had an infection fatality rate of that low, like you could have just pumped water through it and natural immunity would have shown a signal that could have been interpreted as, it was, you know, and in many cases, they may have done just that. It's not I, 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 I would, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, cause I, I gotta be honest, like working for Doctors Without Borders, like, uh, you're, you, you don't have to be all in. It's, it was, you know, it was like the weakest, uh, cult I thought ever ideologically, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and so like, you know, many of the people I worked with over the years, uh, you know, I worked in places like Somalia, Afghanistan, uh, Sri Lanka, Tanzania, uh, Papua New Guinea, um, you know, a bunch of Malawi and, and quite a broad variety of people that I worked with from very many different places. Like I worked with people on mass vaccination campaigns where we vaccinated two and a half million kids for measles uh and some of those people weren't vaccinated themselves because they didn't believe in it but that was cool man like they were there for the mission you know and the mission was like you know and and they agreed with what we were doing as like uh you know and the way that we were doing it because it was all consent based there was no like mandate it was all like you know uh and uh and but they didn't believe in it themselves and like and that was cool beans with the organization nobody was berating them or threatening to fire them or telling them they had to get vaccinated there was no demand for it and that's not the case anymore now that now inside doctors our borders there's this push that people should get vaccinated against covid even if it's not um necessary for them because of their age and health but because to send the right message yeah, and it's like party line, like the official. It's like what the it's the official line for like yeah. all these institutions. It's the same thing. It's it's bizarre at this point. It looks weird, but they stick by it. <laughs> for so that, yeah, that one was a that one was a huge disappointment to me in many ways because the and like I said, the the discussion internally has been very different, and there may very well be a reckoning. But um, the there was a lot of conversation early on in the you know amongst amongst the us the not the off not the people in the office not the like not the the hierarchy but the actual field staff who did the the missions we all keep in touch with each other we like i say there are my friends list is like 50 percent of those people you know and uh and you know we're like and then people are saying like we're just not seeing any fatalities here we're just not seeing the need for this like zero covid fundamentalist you know and they and these are people who are you know experienced doctors nurses public health professionals that are like you know they're applying the pandemic play the new pandemic playbook and they're like going none of this makes sense but the uh so internally in the organization there was a lot of discussion and debate and and dispute but out outwardly facing the organization i think i think like uh it's it's actually said less than it normally would in a normal time. It's been, I haven't seen anything about Doctors Without Borders in the news. Yeah, but it's funny you mentioned that. And I was like, what 
is there context in within the pandemic? I can't actually think of a single like significant um, statement. Um, and I was curious, like what what was the relationship with who, like the World Health Organization, like? Did they have like a close working relationship? Oh no, it was terrible. Um, you know the uh, so like my first ever um, assignment for MSF in Somalia, uh, we were undoing damage caused by WHO. Um, where they were refusing to accept a artemisin, which is a, 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 a herbal, re- started as a herbal remedy as a treatment for malaria. And we're insisting on ineffective, like drugs, which the malarial strains had become resistant to. But, disease, most likely. <laughs> and so we were actually like at loggerheads with them, like in the international arena. You know, we were, we were in disputes with them and we were saying, no, this is like, you know, medically un, uh, inappropriate. You know, you, you need to change the protocols. You need to stop threatening <laughs> sanctions against people, against doctors who want to use, you know, treatments that aren't scheduled yet by the WHO. Uh, it was pretty classic stuff that you would have expected came from doctors at borders now around things like ivermectin and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's they, they would have been in another world, like in this, because this is where we're in the parallel universes, right? There is a parallel universe where the pandemic fell over because the president of Doctors Without Borders stood up and called bullshit on it, right? In partnership you know, with African Federation, like a pan-African Federation or something like that. I can, I can see it. Yeah, totally. Uh, because, you know, <laughs> they, that would have been what, what would have happened, you know? It was like, but the organization sh- silenced itself rather than get dragged into what was going to be potentially like a, a huge um rupture inside the organization. Yeah. It makes me uh, even more convinced of this kind of like intimidation or whatever campaign it was to keep everybody in line. It seems I uh, clearly worked with doctors without borders who have, it seems like a track record that would have indicated they would have behaved much differently um, throughout these last years. And that's very scary to be honest. It, 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 it really is frightening, you know? Yeah. It shocked, it shocked me. Uh, and and I was also really surprised by the, I mean, I would, uh, you know, I could talk about this for, this is a whole other topic for hours, but like, uh, you know, I'd retired in 2020 and I was actually doing at that point, uh, my senior year of a degree in molecular biology and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and we were studying and, the, and, March it was when we started the virology. <laughs> the symmetry. And, and so, you know, this is happening live, right? The, the virus is going on. It's, wow. it's, uh, you know, uh, we've, we've moved to online classes already. Uh, and, you know, um, and we've got a famous, semi-famous virologist, at least like she's published books, not just papers. Um, and one of, and we're studying the, you know, SARS-CoV-2, we're comparing the sequences, the, the protein expression, the whole sciencey stuff. And, uh, one, <laughs> a little, like a little spike protein. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We did. I've, I've studied it in detail, uh, you know, under the tutelage of a virologist Absolutely. and, uh, and I'm, and I'm looking at this stuff and I'm like, you know, I'm like, this doesn't, you know, I, I couldn't tell where she was going with it. She seemed, it was still in the dubious phase, right. Mm-hmm. Where like, you know, uh, our college, it was uh, Evergreen State College actually. In, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
for sure. Had overreacted, obviously, like with full <laughs> retard warp drive, you know, hit the full <laughs> warp like, honestly, a great school on principle, like to be honest. Like I, <laughs> seems, I see from videos I've seen uh, from like Brad Weiss here or whatever, it made it not like, look great, but uh, on face value, the idea of it, I do actually support Oh, that's why, I, that's why I went there. The idea of it was very attractive. Yeah, of course. And so like we were, we, we, accept, they, we, we they, that's the you know, evergreen dive straight in. But uh, so one of the, one of the, the, Lesson or one of the um the seminars we're doing is we're comparing uh scientific literature about SARS-CoV-2. And one of those is this now famous proximal origins of SARS-CoV-2 oh, paper yeah, yeah. that's mm-hmm. been topical lately. That's and it. the the professor is and I, I like I I asked some questions because I'm still like, you know, I'm just a student at this point, you know. It's like, but I'm like, uh, you know, uh I asked her to explain how it is that you can get a paper like this into a publication like nature so quickly mm-hmm. without peer review. And mm-hmm. she's like, well, you know, these people are the preeminent speakers on this topic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and if they say it's correct, it's correct class. And I'm like, uh, 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 and, and even, even with my, like, you know, I mean, I'm a senior, you know, molecular biology student. Uh, and I, and you know, I'm still lacking some of that confidence that you might get, uh, that, you know, definitely have now from, from my further sort of study and work. But, um, you know, I'm looking at this paper and I'm just going, this is bullshit. Like, uh, you know, it's like, why are they in such a hurry? Yes. To mm-hmm. rule this out unequivocally. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, uh, is this, what is the rush? You know, like, why not? I mean, like, I can understand that there was like a, you know, uh, uh, it, it, from a national security perspective, I could see that you might want to be like tamp down the idea, not so much of, uh, and this is what would struck me, right? Cause like, you know, I've worked very close in the inner machinations of various organizations and see how they do things sometimes that might not make sense initially, but, yeah. And, and so my initial thought was, is that like, uh, okay, we, we got to keep the whole relationship with China on an even keel during this particular, you know, it's like not, well, let, yeah. let's, you know, it, we've exposed this enormous vulnerability in the supply chain that where everybody's about to, to deal with. And so not wanting to aggravate China anymore is like, I assumed it was going to be a program of a, let's just wait until it's over before we really start digging into this, you know? And I, and so that was what I, ex- I was initially expected was or thought was going on. But when we read that paper and this was like fresh off the, the printing press. Right. And I, it, I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is the psyop. This is like, <laughs> they're, they're, they're like, it was not like the pay and like, and this is this thing, this blind spot with, with scientists. I, I see sometimes as this like, you know, this credulousness, this like, uh, you know, yeah. this like, like, uh, oh, well, if they said so, it must be true. Exactly. Uh, it's kind of almost, yeah. it's like a, yeah, a loyalty to authority, yeah. really, the institution. And, and, but, but it's, and it's, and it, and it, you know, allows them to just gloss over the obvious contradictions. The, you know, my, like, so the, the, the whole thing that that paper stood on, the whole single point that, that their basis was that it was, could not have come from a lab was that it didn't use any known existing viral backbone that was used for virus engineering. And, and I'm like, 
So maybe they made a new one. You know? <laughs> Did you think they were going to like order it from J car, like electronics? Like, you know, if you're going to do something like this, you know, you're not going to be like going, Oh yeah, we'll have three. And it turns out that that's exactly what they did anyway. Yes. You know, that like, that- yeah. My understanding is the, that paper, this proximal origins paper is it comes down to, Oh, they, if it was a bioweapon or a lab creation, they wouldn't have done it like that. So like they can't, yeah. I mean, this. and it's like, well, maybe they just did it different. I don't know. Like, Exactly. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm like, how is this? I, I mean, like, where are your critical thinking faculties here? Yeah, like, exactly. you know, and, but then I, what I realized was like, and you know, like the, my virology professor wasn't, it wasn't an idiot, you know, like I actually had quite a lot of respect for her up until this point, but I could see this strain and tension that she had this internal conflict because she knew as a virologist who'd been funded by Fauci, <laughs> like she would, she'd yeah. bragged about being funded by Fauci, like, uh, you know, and co-author that he was a co-author on one of her papers, you know, that like, uh, you know, it up. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I could see this tension because she knew that like, if it, if, if it was, turns out that this was from a lab, I mean, you know, obviously, but like that if it was absolutely critically accepted, uh, you know, accepted by the mainstream public, the game was up on science. Mm-hmm. The back, <laughs> the backlash you know, <laughs> no, was exactly. gonna. It was yeah. she? She was smart enough to know what would happen, and that that would be the end of, you know, her uh, not just like you know uh, of of whole people's careers, basically funding and, the, the whole the, and, the whole project. <laughs> like, yeah. and done. you can see she's like, I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to be that one. That's going to like speak up. That's going to say something because like, you know, who's, and you know, you can see they're like, who's going to listen to little old me? Who's going to it's easy to self justify out, excuse yourself yeah. from having to do the right thing, really. And I could tell this is what was going on like this. She had this. And, but at the end of it, I was like, and yet, and still you chose. But that's what you were going to do. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how much she was even conscious of some of this or how much of it was kind of playing out almost like in the background, you know, because yeah, the situation just feels so perfectly instrumented for exactly that outcome that, that happened there. The, years in the making. Making scientists have to use their emotions rather than their rational thinking was a perfect play because they <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. knew they were dealing with amateurs when it came to <laughs> the degradation kind of, I would say, like, I mean, we don't have to go into the whole like trans question of it all, but that whole is, uh, there's this whole movement towards like a, an activism. It's not even just science. It's moved towards activism and emotionally based, uh, approaches to things over the way that they were traditionally done. The, the actual craft, the actual like technique that you would like practice, that's all out the window. That seems like the newest um like kind of model or the newest upgrade we got in this 2020 uh new world order like kind of download <laughs> that we got on on this version um but uh, do you have like maybe 10 15 more minutes is that good we, we've got yeah, sure. yeah. okay. i just want to make sure that's okay because uh, i have a few more questions which i have a lot of questions we're gonna have to talk we're gonna have to talk again because we actually have to answer some of my questions i don't know if i want to go to the article but i actually want to ask you about you mentioned maritime law a little bit you spent time on the seas you're a man of the of the world truly like I guess my question is, well, I was asking about ghosts originally on the sea, but I have a question about maritime law. So there's a lot of like conspiracy theories about 
how you know how the world world works let's say and like maritime law and it does seem to me like a lot more is going on the high seas than anybody really has uh, a reasonable idea of it's a lot of action-packed adventure for sure um have you like what's What's it? What's your take on mar- maritime law? Have you heard these like conspiracies that this is the true, uh, the, this mercantile system somehow? Oh, yeah. <laughs> of some kind of like civilizational, uh, mach- machinations, maybe. Like, I, I don't know. It kind of makes sense. There's something about international waters. And you're part of an international organization almost, which kind of almost functions like not, not a nation state, but kind of like a, a principality or like a, a corporation almost. Kind of a, it is sort of a, an entity of its own. Uh, kind of transnationally so it's kind of interesting yeah what's your take on like the new world the, the legalistic framework of new world order let's put it that yeah way. i mean like that's so like i i mean i'm a i'm a an aficionado of many new world order uh theories and particularly i i do i don't track the legal ones maybe as much as i i should by the sounds of it but i have heard this one and you know and i think that like a lot of these theories like um you know there's the there's the germ of of irrefutable historical proof, uh, which is that maritime war for a very large part of, uh, recent human history has been the only like, uh, international law that existed. Mm-hmm. You know, that, uh, so like, uh, you know, the, the, the Dutch East India company established a lot of the colonization, uh, of the, uh, of particularly Southeast Asia through maritime war. Uh, the, you know, the, um, uh, th- there are certain places where, you know, um, there is no war like Somalia <laughs> and maritime war has been used there most recently to exert a form of control over Somalia um, through, I mean, like you talk about things going on that people don't know, like the U S is in constant combat operations off the coast of Somalia and has been for over eight years. Um, those combat operations aren't like uh, ongoing in the sense of, you know, anymore, but, uh, there was a large number of Somalis, you know, killed by, uh, by U.S. military personnel there. Um, so I think that that, like, that there's that, it has that grain of truth. But, uh, in terms of like, uh, I don't, couldn't really say much more further on the de- on the details, but, uh, I, uh, you know, the, um, it is a, it's an hilarious form of, like, it comes up a lot in not just in like conspiracy theories, but also in fiction, uh, these connections. I was trying to think of, uh, Something I read recently where the, the lawyer was a lawyer of maritime law. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember which one it was, but it was a really very, it was, there were conspiracy connections, but it was, it was generally quite amusing. But it's the, a uh, trope also, yeah, for sure with maritime law. It's like, it, it does come up. I can't think of, I've heard references to it. feels like Monty Python or something almost. Yeah, yeah. It might have been a pension book. Uh, yeah. but, uh, it's, well, uh, that would yeah, that would actually make sense. <laughs> um, that's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I just hear these things. I hear, okay. So the things I've heard include things like that you know the united states courts are actually functioning secretly like under maritime law and there's i mean there's some oh yeah <laughs> truth i think to uh like the, i don't understand the law a lot but the more i'm trying to understand things like law and money and how they actually work it is not exactly how uh you know the ostensible way that we kind of perceive things to be they're, they're very much uh not in alignment kind of often with, with what's really going on i guess under the hood i guess that's my experience i'm sure you've had that many times being a man of the world you've been on the high seas a lot <laughs> I, I don't know like i guess the question about like yeah actually what about um lost civilizations is there anything on the high seas that you've seen is there anything yeah just i don't know i want a bunch of anecdotes from davy jones locker what's, but 
<laughs> it's. I mean, I'd actually have to say that, like, uh, the the only the most apparent signs I've seen of ancient civilizations have been on land, um, and that I'm I'm absolutely obsessed with the uh, the Eye of the uh, Sahara, the oh, the, the rich art yeah. structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm planning to go there uh, at some point, uh, just because you know you can. Uh, and you know, I've I've got one of the Nazcar lines from Peru tattooed on my my shoulder uh, after yeah, yeah. A, a very exciting. Uh, uh, ride over those, uh, quite a few years ago, but you know, the, uh, and like, you know, the, the Incan structures, like in Machu Picchu, you know, a lot of those things show signs, I think of, uh, of maybe not necessarily having been built by an ancient civilization, but I think they're the, I, I think that there's more likelihood that there's a, uh, a pre, you know, a, a tradition that goes back further than what our, our current historical, uh, sort of reckoning is. Um, the, it, it's a funny thing with the ocean because like, uh, the a lot of the small weird islands that I've been to were all very new, like as in like you know like there's been a lot of uh, changes over the uh, over the millennia, and uh, you know islands like Hawaii uh, uh, are not that old, relatively speaking, from like you know a, a, a sort of a geological perspective, yeah. and uh, and I'd say that like uh, you know as I said, most of the weird things I've definitely seen weird things at sea. There's no doubt about it. You see like. <laughs> <laughs> strange things and my my friends who've done a lot of deep sea diving have certainly like uh you know that's uh that's been one of the things i've uh i've always wanted to 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 do but was kind of a you know i never never quite managed I've, I've been diving but never been diving in some of these places where there are like the the giant undersea cement yeah, yeah. uh pillars um because I, I, yeah, I, I think like uh, you know the connection with the with the ancient sort of civilizations is is very much that the world has changed quite significantly since mm-hmm. that time, and the the sea is is definitely covering a lot of that. Uh, I think <laughs> this is true. It's funny you mentioned um, just talking about like the science of this kind of a little bit, or I mean, or something you said made me think about what you had mentioned before. I guess about the kind of like the clampdown about the proximal origins paper, where there was this like uh, intrinsic. Res- response almost as a reflex kind of just to be like no question is it's very similar with this idea that you're not not only can you not talk about like ancient alien civilizations or whatever you want to call it you can't speculate it's also racist apparently like there's this like trope that gets tried out that it's like it's racist to talk about it also just completely shut it down um and i think it's like it's the same thing where it makes me think there's more to it (laughs) yeah well so like i mean it's that kind of streisand effect right like i mean i've uh i've I've always uh uh you know had an interest in it and especially like in my travels where i've come across something that's very old or or has an ancient tradition behind it. But I think it was the, uh, the Graham Hancock special that was like, uh, you know, trending on Twitter uh, a few months ago. And, uh, and I generally, I, I, I find those ancient aliens sort of shows a little bombastic, uh, a little repetitive and, uh, and not really a shine on some of the, like the, the better stuff I saw when I was a kid, to be honest. Like <laughs> when people were seemed to be free to go crazy, but, uh, yeah. Do you um, a show called sightings. I don't know. This was like in the nineties. There was, like, Oh yeah. 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 It was, like, there was like really good stuff anyway. Sorry. That was at least a little less trashy. Than <laughs> so, uh, but sorry, like I decided to watch this, like the, what was a lost civilization? or whatever yeah yeah just to see you know and like and uh and he's doing this his trick his rhetorical trick where he's like you know what did those ancient uh you know civilizations see that we don't see today you know uh what's the message they want to send us and i kept thinking it was going to build up to some like weird ancient aliens thing right uh but all he wanted 
the whole thesis of the show, and I haven't read his work more extensively, so I can't comment on that, but the show in particular that you had this like small group of nerds really upset about was, you know, just the, the concept that maybe just maybe at some point in the 200,000 years of Homo sapiens sapiens current physiological state with the brain that we have of this size, we may have had a civilization before the current one. Like that was the thesis. That was the goddamn thesis. Oh, and then there was some weird astro, some weird, um, uh, not weird, but some like uh, stellar event that could possibly have like, you know, the possible (laughs) a a, a microwave shower, you know, Uh, and, and like, like, he's not even calling it the vengeful hand of the Nirubu or like, you know, he's just straight up saying like, maybe there's an asteroid field that we can't see because you can't see them in space. It was totally like, you know, none of it was, was, I thought the, I I didn't even think it, it was, it was, I don't want to say mediocre, but I can in conspiracy theory scales, it was definitely mediocre conspiracy right. stuff. It wasn't you know? provocative, really, I guess. Like, it was yeah. pretty, like, run of the mill. I saw a little bit yeah. of the Netflix one, and I kind of felt the same way. It was like, okay. I also kind of feel like a distrust of things. Like, he's all over YouTube, and, like, uh, he's a Netflix show, so I automatically have a little distrust, even though, uh, you know, I can enjoy those things, even when I'm distrustful. Like, <laughs> but I was, I was saying this to my, to our farmhand, who was, uh, 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 and I'm surprised about the racist thing. Uh, I'll have to ask him if I did a racism, uh, cause he's, uh, he's half, uh, Native American well, and, uh, aliens help them build things. I think. That's oh, yeah. And, right. uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I, I think I've heard that one before, but, uh, but I'm, and as I was saying to, to, to him as well was that why is it so bad that this idea exists that maybe just maybe we were smart before. And then something happened and we got it dumb and now we're smart again, mm-hmm. you know, like, and th- cause that, that was the only thesis of the show. Like why were people hyperventilating about something just as simple as that? Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, when I remember those, when I remember like watching TV shows, like, I mean, that's incredible in the eighties was yeah. like, you know, it was basically saying the Bigfoot was real, you know, yeah. like, and, and yet now you've got this completely like mediocre run of the mill explanation for ancient technology that actually, I don't know, sounds like probably, you know, reasonable to me. And people are hyperventilating about it, calling it misinformation. It's an attack on the academy. It defies all scientific knowledge. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and, and it's like, when did this become a thing that like the, the hallowed world of the academic and, and, you know, we can maybe discuss it because this is kind of my rebranding rebooting project is, uh, is starting to look at some of these sorts of claims. Uh, I've been writing a, a book in my, my spare time, uh, about particle physics and how much, how much actual bullshit particle physics is and how much is it's actually accepted largely because it's published in a million scientific papers and there are journals and conferences, but there's no evidence that traditionally under science you could prove. Um, but you know, it's like, why is the academy so need to be defended? So very, why is, why do we have to like rush to the barricades to defend, you know, every last piece of trash that's come out of the academy, uh, as if it were like, uh, an, uh, a, a perfectly formed truth that's pure and whole in all its ways, you know? 
because yeah well it's built they don't because it's all built on bullshit and they don't want to because they will lose yeah they'll lose they'll be wrong the science will be wrong the deals will fall through it's all the same things it's all the same things that you described with the the professor that you do like the money goes away those the fame goes away and they've kind of been feel like intoxicated a lot of these people by making them experts and making them correct and right and they get a lot of satisfaction from that because you know well anyway i don't want to psychologize too much Uh, i should wrap up shortly this has been really fascinating i have so many more questions for you we're gonna have to talk again uh so i get you're a man of quite uh mystery wonder intrigue uh the the world this is so fascinating i uh, and you have some uh, can i ask you about your your goats you have goats um coming soon like i heard that you told me about somebody's expecting soon right so, uh, so after I realized that, uh, after I realized that, uh, science as I knew it, uh, wasn't going to really, didn't really exist anymore. Uh, but I'd spent all that time, uh, uh, <laughs> getting a degree. I became yeah. very interested in goat genetics. Uh, and there's a long backstory to that. Uh, my wife is a, is a, a breeder, breeds goats, uh, Nigerian dwarf goats. Uh, and, uh, I have a long history with goats. With my humanitarian work, I've become, you could call me a number one goat appreciator. <laughs> and, uh, and so we breed, uh, we breed Nigerian dwarf goats and, uh, Toggenberg dairy goats. Uh, we run a small scale dairy. Um, and my wife, uh, we're, we're looking to, uh, you know, it's, it's not really sort of a, my wife has another job. <laughs> I'm a bit of a kept man in some ways. She has a very well paying tech job. Um, but this is sort of our, our hobby, but, um, uh, I've, uh, I've done a lot of work. Um, done a lot of work in goat genetics, uh, in the last few years as part of my, my science degree. And, uh, uh, and so we have a, you know, we have a large herd of, herd of goats now. We have, uh, uh, about 58, um, wow. uh, currently. <laughs> and uh and about seven pregnant goats uh that uh that are due in the next couple of weeks uh so you know it's uh it's one of the like i said i retired to the countryside to start a goat farm was uh uh was my my you know there's a whole backstory there where you know i mean uh, 2020 was for me was the end of the road rather than for many people the the moment of them realizing that something was wrong sure. uh i'd already been coming to this Mm-hmm. seen the infiltration, seen the psyop happening in other areas. And by the time 2020 arrived, I was surprised by some of those organizations, but some of the other organizations like, like Greenpeace and, uh, you know, other groups, uh, I was not surprised at all that, uh, that they, they were completely like, you know, brainwashed by the whole thing. Um, and so like my retiring was retired to the, f- <laughs> and, and, you know, not in, not in that sort of trad, like, uh, you know, uh, back to the land sort of way necessarily. I mean, it's a, there is, there is something to be said for eating your own beef and like drinking your own milk that you can't really, you know, it, it's, it's, it's real. It's, it's a great feeling, but, exactly. uh, you know, part so of it was just. Yeah, you come to it though. Like, I guess there's a difference, I think, between like the people you're kind of like um, referencing, the kind of people we see online who do it to be online about it versus yeah. like who, who come to it because you, uh, through reason and your own life's pursuit, realize it's something you wanted and needed to do, which is like to be like self sufficient, probably as possible. I feel like it's very admirable, in my opinion, anyway. And there's, and I got to say that, uh, you know, just as a wrap up on that, there is nothing like, having a uh, a pen with 20 baby goats 
running around in it. It's like having a baby goat uh, wading pool uh, that you can. <laughs> That's like cute and disgusting, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, not everybody's into it, but uh, it's certainly uh, when I'm when I'm feeling in my most cynical and darkest moments, uh, going and sit, spending a few minutes in the uh, in the baby goat pen uh, has a way of uh, cheering most people up. Right. That's what it's all about. I, I, it's amazing. The goat man himself, Mr. Biz, uh, you're the first, you're the first white biz I think I've met. I've met a few. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The other, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but I shouldn't, I shouldn't try. The other biz I knew was, was a drug dealer, but that's a whole another story for another time. It, it is such a pleasure. Like I, I cannot thank you enough. Like, um, it was really funny because you came up, uh, in a conversation on this podcast. Uh, I, I, it was really funny and I feel like it was, um, uh, a signal. I know uh, Q mentioned you. It brought you into this fold, and I feel like um, I don't know. We we didn't talk about anybody else, so there won't be a. a, a oh, actually, maybe is there a chain? Do you want to keep the chain going? Is there anybody I should bring onto this show? Do you want to tag somebody? Oh damn! Um, mm, no, you put me on the spot here with that one. You don't have uh, to. I'll, I'll probably wake up and uh, wake up this morning, uh, like at four o'clock, and go. You should get them on. <laughs> um, I, it's it's mostly been the other way. I've been enjoying the follows. Uh, from uh from some of your guests uh uh it's really uh you know brought me much more into that side of twitter um and i have to say i, I felt a little fan fan girly when i when you dropped my name because uh uh yourself and and sorry to say q is my my or or um Thank you is my, my all time top favorite podcaster at the it's moment. More professional than <laughs> <laughs> with yourself as a very close second. Uh, <laughs> we're, you know, but, this is more, this is a little bit more of an underground venture. You know, I always, I always <laughs> they're, they're major label. I'm, I'm a little bit more, uh, tin, tin pan alley. <laughs> yeah. The, you're the indie label. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what I'm, I'm on an out of tune piano falling down a flight of stairs, but it's entertaining sometimes still. Um, <laughs> Biz, thank you. Is there anything else? I guess we, we, we'll just, we'll probably just cancel the show after this. So you don't have to worry about tagging another guest. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do encourage, I, like, I, yeah, I'm glad that you're getting the follows. I feel like you are spiritually connected to this community of strange, this constellation, I guess, I like to call it this assortment of uh, just interesting people. And I feel like, uh, yeah, I know you don't, you don't like super huge poster but you do post and i uh hope that you continue to do that but it makes me all the more reason to have you on this uh program so you can get your your oh i know who you should get on you should get you should get pericles abassi on the show oh my gosh that's a <laughs> great totally call. Get Perry. that's a great call actually I, actually I think i have to start some fake beef with them a little bit because of something <laughs> that will come on a, a forthcoming podcast um we'll, we'll get into it uh well I'll, yeah i'll drum up some uh, drama i think that's a great call thank you Biz. that's <laughs> wonderful um this i will we won't talk about your at here we will uh we'll post it in the link to the show uh, a little bit once once everything's ready to go uh, any final cl- closing thoughts for our uh, audience before we go uh, i just have to say um uh 2020 was a terrible year for me because it basically trashed almost all of my irl friendships mm-hmm. uh, it was pretty it, it's it's difficult like it's been difficult for a lot of people whose normie friends behave the way they did but when your friends had the power to do something and they chose not to it's really it's really been a a real hard time for me and it's it's been such a delight to find this little corner of twitter where there's sensible people uh that <laughs> a little daffy too but it's so sure oh, that's my kind of daffy you know it's a, it's a, i say sensible in the in the in the very loose uh sense of the word uh <laughs> people people on my frequency uh the the the, the people if i was to yeah. you know suddenly be dropped into a timeline uh convergence that i'd be uh i'm happy to share 
<laughs> yeah, so it's a high vibrational set of people, as I like to say, and you are certainly uh, amongst that milieu. I keep saying this word. I don't really like that word. It's hard to say, and yet we've dropped it several times on this episode. Um, Biz, thank you again. It was wonderful to hear about your experiences. I highly encourage you to continue writing about them because I loved your piece. I thought you're an excellent writer in addition to a great storyteller. Thank you for bringing that drama and flair to this program and for our listeners. We'll absolutely be talking to you again um, soon. Um, and classic pool house style i can't wrap this episode so i'm just gonna hit the end button in just a moment that's the way to do it i really do appreciate you so much i wish you a good night good luck with those baby goats all the way (laughs) thanks Uh, we'll share some photos of those in the post i think that's a a great indeed have a great evening biz thanks again you too bye